0: The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Well, as we heard earlier, we are rolling out our teaching theme today as our church ministry here gets underway in earnest. We're calling it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, knowing and loving the Word of God. You're going to hear more about it in uh, Sunday school in a little while, and you'll find more about it in the booklets, uh, which we hope are a great resource and help to you. Now, in service of our theme, we're going to be working our way on Sunday mornings with some breaks here and there through the 119th Psalm. As you know, Psalm 119 focuses on the Word of God. Almost every verse, perhaps depending on who you talk to with one verse or maybe five verses, in 176 verses, every verse names and uses a synonym for the Word of God. It's focused on Holy Scripture. More than that, however, it's actually focused not just on the Bible in the abstract, but on one man's communion with God through His Holy Word. So, it's almost as though we are looking over the shoulder of the psalmist as he writes every day in his journal about his walk with God and his engagement With God's holy words. Famously, you may know Psalm 119, like Psalm 25 and Psalm 34, portions of the Book of Lamentations. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. That means that each of the eight verse stanzas of the psalm begins with the same Hebrew letter. If you look in your English Bibles, you'll see that's indicated. By the name of each Hebrew letter written like a title over each stanza of the psalm. Do you see that in your text? So, in the first stanza that we're going to consider in a few moments, the first uh, letter of the first word of all eight stanzas begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, then the next eight begins Beit, and then the next eight Gimel, and then Dalit, and so on and so forth through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119, quite literally, is the A to Z of the believer's walk with God. The A to Z of the believer's walk with God. Jonathan Edwards said, quote, I know of no part of the Holy Scriptures where the nature and evidences of true and sincere godliness are so fully and largely insisted on and delineated as in the 119th Psalm. So, here is a comprehensive treatment, a complete guide to the Christian life, the A to Z of the believer's walk with God. And if the skill of the poet in using an acrostic like this to organize his thinking in this psalm isn't impressive enough for you, what we're going to see as really remarkable is that within each stanza, each eight-verse stanza itself in turn also displays an extraordinary degree of composition and care. Each unit has its own inner structure that uses all the rules and conventions of Hebrew poetry. In other words, Psalm 119 is beautiful. It's beautiful. The masterful creativity and complexity, and clarity involved in composing, this psalm is stunning. And that's actually, I find at least, enormously helpful to see in a psalm about the Bible, because it reminds us that beauty is not irrelevant in the communication of truth. God could have communicated to us with a rather drab and dreary textbook, couldn't he? If he wanted to, he could have simply provided a long, boring list of propositions and commands. But instead, we have a book of literature, of poetry and parables and soaring prose. It's meant to do more than merely communicate data to our intellects. It's meant to stimulate and to move, and to provoke, and to comfort, and to convict, and to astonish, and to delight us. God is an artist. God is a poet. He makes beautiful things because He is beautiful in His holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And we love Him best, when His beauty captures our hearts most. And that is part of the purpose of the 119th Psalm, actually part of the purpose of the whole Bible. The psalm likely dates from the time of the Babylonian exile. Its vocabulary draws uh, from almost the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Pentateuch, the Proverbs, the prophecy of Isaiah, and the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, of course, straddles the beginning of the exile. What's more, the psalmist frequently refers to himself as a sojourner. A sojourner is a a resident alien in a strange land. That's who he is. He's living in hostile territory, surrounded by enemies in a foreign culture and context, seeking to live faithfully in accordance with the Word of the Lord. So, he's almost certainly one of the Jewish captives living in Babylonian exile, which, let's remember, parallels our condition precisely. We, too, have no enduring city here. We are looking for a city that is to come, whose builder and maker is God. This world is not our home. We are, as Peter calls the church in Asia Minor, elect exiles of the dispersion. That is to say, we are sojourners, temporary residents, heading under the leading of God by His holy Word for the new Jerusalem that is yet to come. And so, the struggles and the opposition and the isolation and the resolution and the determination and the worship and praise that is, the heartbeat of the 119th psalm speaks with remarkable relevance to the circumstances and context of our own Christian lives. One more thing before we look at the passage itself. Uh, Let me tell you something really extraordinary. Psalm 119 follows Psalm 118. Uh, Actually, that, that may be one of the keys to interpreting this psalm faithfully. Psalm 118 is about the Davidic king, the heir of King David. It's about Messiah, ultimately, it's about Jesus. And the king in Israel, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, is never to depart from the word of the law of God. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, Deuteronomy says, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord as God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. So, Psalm 118 describes the king. Psalm 119 pictures that king fulfilling his divine obligation to be a man of the book, to be in the Word and obedient to the Word. And so, as we read through Psalm 119, one thing to keep in the back of your mind is that again and again, here we see an echo of our Savior's obedience and commitment to the Word of the Lord. This is a book about the Bible in general. It's a book particularly about our submission to and delight in and obedience to the Word of God. But over it all and behind it all, it is a book full of Christ. Now, today we're going to be looking at the first stanza, verses 1 through 8. If you've not turned there already, you can find that on page 512 of the church Bibles. This first stanza is the, it's the front porch. It's the introduction to Psalm 119. Many of the themes we're going to see will reappear. Uh, we're going to see them here, and they'll reappear throughout the psalm in the weeks ahead. If you look at it, you'll see, I think, quite quickly that it divides evenly into two halves, verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 8. At the end of verse 4, and at the end of verse 8, the last word of each line is the same word in Hebrew. In English, if you see that word diligently in verse 4 and the word utterly in verse 8, those are two different English words, same word in Hebrew signaling the the division of each section. Also, verses 1 through 4 speak mostly of they and them. Verses 5 through 8 speak mostly of me and you. Verses 1 through 4 state the facts. Verses 5 through 8 turn those facts into prayer. And so verses 1 through 4, here's our outline. The good life, the blessed life, the good life described. Verses 5 through 8, the good life, the blessed life, the good life longed for. So the good life described and the good life longed for. Now, before we read the passage, let's bow our heads and pray together. Our God and Father, we pray that You would send us the help of the Spirit of Your Son, who inspired the words before us, that He might illuminate our understanding and grant us grace to believe all that You would say to Your church. For Jesus' sake, amen. Psalm 119, at the first verse, this is the Word of God. then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all Your commandments, I will praise You with an upright heart when I learn Your righteous rules. I will keep Your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken in His holy inerrant words. When I was a boy, there was a BBC sitcom called The Good Life, Uh, The premise of the show focused on the midlife crisis of a 40-year-old plastics designer called Tom Cook as he and his wife Barbara set out to escape, quote, the rat race by becoming, as they put it, totally self-sufficient. And all sorts of nonsense ensue in the wake of that decision. It's a goofy 70s comedy, but it got some things right, The good life is not to be found in running the rat race. It was tragically blind, however, blind in the same way we all are, when it concluded that the high road to the good life is paved with total self-sufficiency. Psalm 119 in general, and these opening eight verses in particular, show us a better path, actually the only path, to the good life. That's why the opening two verses, verses 1 and 2, start in the way that they do. Blessed are those. The repetition is meant to drive the point home. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. The language you may remember echoes Psalm 1 that we read at the beginning of our service and that we're going to work at memorizing together in the weeks ahead of us. Psalm 1 describes the blessedness of life lived according to God's ways. The word blessed means happy under the favor of God. It is the smile of God shining upon His children, giving them His benediction, pouring out His grace, shaping their lives. It's truly the good life. And verses 1-4 through four describe that life for us. Here's the good life described, first of all. Look how verse 1 puts it. First of all, the blessed person, the one who lives the good life, the psalmist says, is blameless. Do you see that word in verse 1? Blameless. doesn't mean sinless. That's crucial. We mustn't think what the psalmist is saying is, if you could just be sinlessly perfect, well then you would live a blessed life. If that's what he was really saying, quite frankly, this would be a terrible psalm, pounding away at our guilty consciences verse after verse for 176 verses, just to remind us we never will enjoy the good life because we never can be sinlessly perfect. That's often actually how I think we read challenging passages like this one, that call us to blamelessness and to holiness. We read them and we say almost instinctively, that can't be done. And then we remember Jesus is the supremely blessed one. As I said at the beginning, He is described here. He was obedient in every way. And so we say, what a relief. What a relief. Jesus was blameless for us. And then here's where we often make the misstep. So far, so good, in one sense. But here's where we often go wrong. We then say, well, if Jesus has done it all, I guess I don't have to be blameless after all. And that can sound very pious. The problem is it completely reverses the meaning of Psalm 119. It's not The psalm is not mainly trying to expose our inability to be sinless so that we run to Jesus and hide our sin under the covering of His perfect sinlessness. Now, don't get me wrong, that's always the right thing to do. Of course it is. Whenever we see our sin, that's the correct response every time. Run to Jesus. Hide your blamable life under the cloak of His perfect blamelessness. Every time, good, you must do that. You should do it right now. Every day, yes and amen. It's just not the point of this part of Psalm 119. No, here, the psalmist assumes we are already clinging to the grace of God for pardon and cleansing and salvation. As we would say, it presupposes we're already trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ so that His perfect righteousness has been counted as though it were our own. And we stand forgiven and accepted before God. That is all foundational. And now with that in place, Psalm 119 calls us to a life of cheerful new obedience. Cheerful new obedience. That's the focus. just won't let us off the hook, will it? It won't let us rest content with justification alone, as if that was all that the Christian life requires. No, it calls us and presses us to go on to sanctification as well. It calls us to growing holiness. And that's the gospel pattern. Let's remember, the gospel includes both the provision of pardon for our guilt and power for new purity for our lives, both flowing from the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, Psalm 119 says to us, purity is possible. Now, if you struggle with besetting sin like me, that is good news indeed. You are not condemned to an endless and hopeless struggle. Purity, growing, not perfect purity, not sinless perfection, but real, true, growing likeness to Christ is possible by the grace of God. Praise the Lord. Now, don't be shocked, therefore, to hear the psalmist say, if you're a believer in Jesus, you can be blameless in this life. doesn't mean sinless, but he does mean blameless. A blameless person is quick to repent, is quick to trust in Christ for grace. A blameless person lives with integrity. Mud will not stick. They are the real deal inside and out. They are above reproach. They are unimpeachable. That's what he means by blamelessness. Alec Motier. Uh, translates this verse as, blessed are those who are integrated in the way. In other words, the way of God has become the way of their life. That's a blameless life. Now, does that describe your life or my life? Or is it the case, rather, that our Christian lives know so little of that happy blessedness with which Psalm 119 begins, because we really believe deep down that actually sin will make us happier than holiness ever could. Isn't that our problem? We really think our sin is going to make us happier than obedience and holiness ever can. We think a good life, the good life that that indulges sin is better, and obedience is only going to bring misery. What a terrible lie that is. What a terrible lie. Blessed are those, happy are those whose way is blameless. The path to lasting happiness is a life of blessed blamelessness. Well, okay, you say, I want that. I want to be that person. How do I do it? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, Look at the passage again. The way of blessing is the way of obedience to God's law. Verse 1, the blessedly blameless person, quote, walks in the law of the Lord. Now, law there is the familiar Hebrew word Torah. It's unfortunate, really, that we translate it law because it really means teaching. It is the comprehensive prescription for our whole life given by God to His people in Holy Scripture. That's Torah. And that is the way of obedience that leads to the good life. It is a Bible shaped life. A Bible shaped life. And verse 2, if you look at it, reinforces the point. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies. There's another word for another synonym for the Bible, by the way, God's testimonies. And the blessed life keeps, that is, preserves, cherishes, sticks to God's testimonies. His testimonies are what God says about Himself and His will for us. And you live the good life by sticking to the witness of God about God, found only in His holy words. And so, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, where am I really looking today for a good life? Where are you looking for the good life? Oh, how many people waste their lives and end them consumed with bitterness and regret because they've spent their days looking for the good life in all the wrong places. You will not find it. You will not find it unless you look for it in God's book. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies. But don't miss that verse 2 also says, they seek Him with their whole heart. Those two things always have to go together, don't they? We must be on our knees in the Word. We must be talking to God in prayer while we're listening to Him talk to us in Scripture. Stick to the book, yes, and seek God with all your heart. A Bible without prayer, I want you to picture a beautiful fruit tree, its branches bowing under the weight of lush, ripe, juicy fruit, ready for the picking, but always out of reach. That's a Bible without prayer. Prayer is the ladder that lets you reach up and take what it has to offer. You get the blessing of the Word by seeking God with all your hearts. If you struggle to unlock the meaning of Scripture, you feel sometimes like it's a closed book to you, have you turned the key of prayer? You open, you unlock the Bible on your knees. In the Word, on our knees. That's central, the psalmist is saying, to the good life. But notice also, verse 3, that simple, straightforward obedience really matters too. Do you see that in verse 3? Blessed people, he says, also do no wrong but walk in His ways. Don't you find the blunt straightforwardness of that really refreshing and rather helpful? There's no ambiguity here, is there? Blessed people do no wrong, but they walk in God's ways. Here's the profound, life-changing truth hidden in verse 3. You ready for it? Hold on to your seats. Obedience is better than sin so simple, so obvious, I have to battle every single day to believe that it is true. Obedience is better than sin. If I could just get it through my thick skull, what a difference that would make. Obedience to God and His Word is better than the indulgence of the flesh. Blessed people get busy obeying God. Look, it's just not correct to say, as I've sometimes heard said, that God is just as pleased with His children when they are sinning as He is when they're obeying. It's just simply not true. If you want to know His blessing, His smile, His favor, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and do what He says really not complicated. That's why the first part of the psalm ends as it does in verse 4. You have commanded your precepts, yet another name for the Bible, your precepts. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Remember, we said that word diligently can mean something like deeply or utterly or comprehensively or wholly. That's the kind of obedience God wants from us not a rough approximation, not good enough, but complete, wholehearted, thoroughgoing, all the way to the end, obedience. Holiness, let's remember, real holiness, is perfect likeness to Jesus Christ. Perfect likeness to Jesus Christ. That's what a life lived according to the Word of God means. I want to know Jesus, and I want to be like Him. Is that what you want? You've got to understand that until it is, the good life will elude you. I want to know Him, and I want to be like Him. So, the first thing to see here, the good life described. Secondly, and much more uh, quickly, verses 5 through 8, the good life longed for. The good life longed for. You'll have spotted, I'm sure, that the mood in this, this part of the psalm shifts in verse 4, because the psalmist now starts to address God directly, and he'll stay in that mode, that posture of prayer, for the remainder of the psalm all the way to verse 176. So, this is all one long personal prayer addressed to God from the heart of the psalmist. Uh, verses 1 through 4, he has rehearsed for himself what the blessed life should look like. Now, he turns to God and cries out for the grace to begin to live the blessed life. First verse 5, he cries to God to make him consistent. You see that in verse 5? Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. What a realistic prayer. I, I want to live according to God's Word. My problem isn't starting. I start well enough. My problem is consistency. It's steadfastness. Can you, can you relate to that? I start, I'm starting all the time. But oh, for grace to be more consistent, to be more steadfast. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He knows that progress in Christian obedience is not a matter of a bare, do better, try harder strategy. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps might succeed in modifying my behavior a little bit, but it will not touch the festering sinkhole of sin that is my heart. No, the power for purity, remember, is blood-bought. Christ died not just to forgive us, but to make us holy by His Word and Spirit. And so, do what the psalmist does, and go to Him, Pray, Psalm 115, verse 5, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's raw and honest and urgent. It suits my case perfectly. I bet it suits yours as well. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in keeping your statutes. And notice what happens when God begins to answer that prayer. Two things. First, in verse 6, there's new assurance and spiritual confidence. Look at verse 6 then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. You know, when, like Peter, walking across the water to meet Jesus, my eyes linger on the wind and the waves, pretty soon I'm sinking. But when my eyes are fixed on Christ, as He stands forth to my gaze in the pages of the book of God, when His Word begins to shape and reconfigure my mind and my thinking and directs my desires, when He gives me steadfastness in keeping His statutes, well, then I'm secure. Assurance and obedience go together. You struggle with assurance? No wonder, because you've been sleeping with your girlfriend you struggle with assurance but you're a habitual liar you've taken no steps to mortify your sin no wonder you struggle with assurance obedience and assurance go together when god gives us steadfastness in keeping his commandments we lift up our heads without shame we live in the bright smile of god there's also another outcome from the prayer of verse 5 first is assurance the second is pra- is praise Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Upright hearts are shaped by righteous rules, but notice an upright heart shaped by righteous rules, it's not sour, it's not sharp, it's not ugly. It's a vital mark of real holiness. Haven't you seen that in people from time to time who are really noticeable for their godliness? They're attractive. Compelling, you want to be around them. Holiness is happy, it's full of song, it's thankful, it praises God. It doesn't boast look how far I've come, look how much better I am, how superior I am to the riffraff around me. It doesn't judge. Doesn't look down on anyone because it's too busy looking up to God in gratitude and dependence and praise. I'll praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Do you feel God's rules are heavy and restrictive and burdensome? Have you forgotten the word of the Lord Jesus? Matthew 11. 28, come to me, you all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, he says. My burden is light. Those who begin to live God's way Do not find God's Word a weight and a drudgery. It is an easy yoke and a light burden, and our hearts begin to soar in gratitude for the work of God by His Word in our hearts. So, he prays God would make him consistent in his study of his love for his obedience to the Holy Scriptures, and that produces new assurance, new confidence, and results in wonderful praise. And now look at verse 8, which sort of sums it all up. The first line of verse 8 is full of resolve, and the second line is full of reliance. Resolve and reliance. I will keep your statutes. Resolution. Do not forsake me utterly. Reliance, dependence, determination and dependence those are the two sides of all christian obedience you know resolve and reliance determination and dependence i will but oh god you must i will but oh god you must i will keep your statutes do not utterly forsake me it's philippians 2:12 and 13 isn't it work out your salvation with fear and trembling resolve now determine now to go hard after the life of obedience to which the Lord has called you. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. Depend upon Him even while you determine to obey Him. The grace to live the good life is yours for free from the nail-pierced hands of of Jesus. He bought it for you. Claim it from Him as you seek now to live for His glory. So, the good life described. Do you see it? And the good life longed for. My prayer for the weeks ahead that we have together in Psalm 119 is that we all would begin to know in new ways the joy and the happiness of the good life, as we live for God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we adore You for Your holy Word. It is indeed a light to our feet and a lamp for our path. Bless us as we give ourselves anew in this year that we have together to its study. Help us to meditate on it day and night to walk in the law of the Lord, to know the good life, the smile of Your grace shining upon us in Your Son, the Lord Jesus, as we begin in repentance and new obedience to live for Your praise. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.